So the title of this morning's message is Don't Judge, But Yet Go Ahead and Judge. And you'll uh, learn a little bit more why it's titled that. This morning we're continuing our focus on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we've uncovered that he is speaking to a large group of his followers on a beautiful hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. He reveals to them that in him the kingdom of God has been ushered in to their world. The focus of his message to them is on kingdom living, and he uncovers that his followers are to live countercultural lives. The values and morals of his kingdom are otherworldly. And when you're a kingdom follower, you are choosing to live in distinctly different ways than people choose to live in the kingdom of this world. The longer we sit under Jesus' teaching as his followers, we more deeply understand how these two kingdoms actually clash, how they're at odds with each other, how when it's all said and done, it's not possible to go on all in living for both. And we hear this in his words in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world. Think about it. How could anyone live fully for the values of two kingdoms that are diametrically opposed to each other? One is always going to win out in the end. And ask yourself this morning, which kingdom has been winning out in my life? Up to this point, Jesus has mostly dealt with themes connected to the interior spiritual life where he knows that each of us live from our hearts. It is the attitudes and conditions of our heart that drive how we think and how we live. And we see this in the scriptures in various ways where it says, from the abundance of what is stored up in our heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus actually spoke against kind of a behavioral modification when he says, stop trying to clean the outside of the cup. It's the inside of the cup that needs to be clean. And then also one of the Proverbs says, as man thinks in his heart, so is he. In his sermon, Jesus opens up with the Beatitudes, how to be in your attitude. Those who live blessed lives in his kingdom are poor in spirit. They mourn over sin. They demonstrate a spirit of humility and deference for others. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They embrace persecution as they live for kingdom values and are people who forgive others. Tell me how many billboards you've seen as you've traveled across the country that actually uh, exemplify these values. Probably none. I remember a Chuck Swindoll quote. He says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think, say, or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitude. This quote from Chuck Swindoll has stuck with me for decades. For in my own life experience, I have found it to be true. My attitude controls my perspective on everything in my life. 
on God, on me, on other people, on my world. This is why Jesus' sermon begins right there with the attitudes of your heart. Jesus has addressed our hard attitudes concerning the poor and being generous givers, not hoarding our blessings to ourselves. He has addressed the attitudes about prayer and fasting, not as evidence of our self-righteousness, but, you know, look how spiritual I am, but rather the evidence of a heart that is dependent, surrendered, and diligently seeking God. He's addressed our hard attitudes towards materialism and our anxiety over material things. And now in chapter 7, the final chapter representing this very special sermon, Jesus touches on an important theme related to the way we think of and treat others. And once again, he contrasts the values of these two kingdoms that are clashing with each other. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For if you'll be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you'll be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter of wood in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye while there's a beam in your own eye? Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. So the very first phrase in this part of Jesus' sermon is probably one of the most misquoted and misused verses in all the New Testament. Don't judge, or you too will be judged. We hear these words repeatedly daily by those who live by the values of this world, and those words are tolerance, inclusion, and diversity. Each word at first glance is a positive word, something that we all should want and aspire to. I want to be tolerant of people. I want to include and accept people that are different than I am, who live differently than I do. I want there to be diversity of age and gender and race and views and perspective in my community and even in this church. But where the problem lies for the Christian, for those who proclaim they are Jesus followers, is that the kingdom of this world has a different definition of these words. Tolerance, inclusion, and diversity for them is you have to accept me and my behavior even if my behavior or lifestyle choices violate the biblical principles and values by which you live. It is the teachings of Jesus by which the following saying has been coined, love the sinner, hate the sin. Jesus exemplified this and why his enemies actually proclaimed he is a friend of sinners. Jesus was a friend of culturally despised tax collectors who used their position to extort money. He was a friend of prostitutes and women who were caught in adultery. You see, because Jesus could see beyond their behavior to their lostness, their pain, and the brokenness of their hearts. And oh, he certainly didn't shy away from speaking the truth in love and calling out people for their sin, but his heart was never condemning towards the sinner. Only the self-righteous. Matthew 9.36 says, When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I think this is where we fail repeatedly. 
We judge people in our hearts. We condemn people who do not live by the kingdom of heaven values, even though they are not redeemed and are without the Holy Spirit and have little wherewithal to do so. But if we are saying we are followers of Jesus, then we should have the heart of Jesus and treat those who live in sin as he did. I believe it's really possible as Jesus' followers to love others who violate the tenets of Scripture. Do you know why I think that is possible? Because you do it with yourself all the time. I'm okay with me. I treat myself pretty good. I try to love myself. I just hate this thing that I do. There's a quote from an 18th century Anglican bishop, George Horn. He says, We are neither to hate the people or condemn them for the vices they practice, nor love the vices for the sake of the people who practice them. It's not the unconditional tolerance of sinful behavior or lifestyles we are called to as followers of Jesus, but to the unconditional love of the sinner that we are called to. So Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. So, hey, Christian, didn't the guy you claim to follow say don't judge people? Well, yes, he did say that, but take a journey with me so that we can try to understand what he truly means. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come to you this morning, and as we dive into your sermon, we know that these are words from your very heart. This is who you are, and who you are is exemplified by how you lived on earth. And so, Lord, as we hear these words that you preach in one of the greatest, if not the greatest, sermon that was ever preached, open our hearts and our minds, speak into our lives. Help us not to look at each other, not to look at our brothers, not to think of the person that isn't even here or the people we're in relationship with, but help us to say, Lord, how does this apply to me? Give us wisdom, give us understanding, and give us spirit of humility to act on what it is that you speak into our lives today. And we ask that in your name. Amen. Don't judge or you too will be judged. What does it mean to judge? The Greek word krino means to decide, to determine the correctness of a matter, or to pass judgment or to condemn. In our context, this last one appears to be what Jesus is telling his followers not to do. Don't pass judgment. Don't condemn people. When Jesus commands his followers not to judge, he's telling them not to be judgmental. You see, judging means actually discerning the truth based on facts, whereas judgmental means finding fault with people, being critical without cause, quick to jump to conclusions based on your personal feelings our assumptions. You know those times when you don't have all the information or you don't even seek to have all the information? You jump to conclusions without having the full story. You make up things you don't know for certain. You seem to assume the worst about people. You judge a person's motives as if you can see into their heart. It distresses me to see over the years just how many Christians are so easily willing to eat their own. Without giving the benefit of the doubt, without having all the facts, without going to the source to find out more, how often they assume the worst about their fellow brothers and sisters. 
Jesus is telling you this morning that if you are a Christian like this, you are living in sin. Jesus is saying this is how people of the world's kingdom think and behave, but not followers of mine. People who follow me are humble and gracious and kind. They're merciful, they're forgiving, who long to see God's very best for others and are willing to come alongside people to speak truth in love. And even if a brother or sister is found to be in sin, Paul says in Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Let's move on and read verse two again. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others and you will be measured by the same measure you use. And what I believe Jesus is actually speaking about here to his followers is about actually God's judgment on us. It's important to recognize that we will all face judgment. But that judgment is coming from our creator, from God. He is the one we all must give an account to for how we lived our life on earth. For the unbeliever, it's a judgment that impacts our eternal destiny, eternal separation from God the Father, for rejecting his son Jesus. But for the believer, their judgment is not concerning eternity. For they have a secure place in God's family and in his heavenly home based on their saving faith in Christ. The one they believe in as God and who through his death, burial, and resurrection has provided the way, the one way to the Father in heaven. The believer will be judged concerning eternal rewards they receive based on how they live their life on earth but their place with God in heaven is always eternally secure. The unbeliever's judgment is towards their eternal destiny. The Christian's judgment is towards their eternal rewards. So unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever here today, it's crucial that you know where you stand with Jesus. If you're a believer here this morning, it's crucial that you repent of your judgmental words and behavior. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says some sobering words. In Matthew 12, 36, he says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Wow. When we judge or condemn people, we in essence are standing in the place that God alone stands and he will judge us for it. Let's read on in verses three through five. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? So it's important to note here that he says brother. And so he's talking to his followers, and he's talking to the relationship between his followers. Right now, he's not talking about how we act towards the culture or the people of the world or the people of the worldly kingdom. He's talking about us who live in his kingdom. And he says, this is what you do to, towards each other. He goes on and says, hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So when I read Jesus' analogy here, I can't help but think that it comes from his time as an apprentice carpenter in Joseph's workshop. 
Various versions either says it's a beam of wood or a log or a plank, all materials that typically would be used in a carpenter shop. It says splinter, speck, sawdust, kind of the aftermath of working with wood after you've cut it. And I'm sure carpenters have experienced getting some sawdust or splinter in their eye as they've worked with wood. But the one thing I love and where I see Jesus' actual humor in this is picturing a guy walking around with a huge piece of wood in his eye. And I actually wanted to illustrate this. And Lucas, if you'd come on up. And maybe grab our little prop over here as you come on up. And so Lucas... Lucas is a buddy of mine, oh, no. and I've, <clears throat> I've contacted him and said, hey, Lucas, why don't you come on over? I have something I need to talk with you about, okay? And so, Lucas, you're here, and you uh, say, Jim, um, you called, wanted me over. W what is it that you want to talk about? Oh, That's Jim, what was it you wanted to talk to me about? <laughs> well, you see, brother, I noticed that you have this sin in your life. You see, and there's this speck, uh -huh. and, and I want to help you. I want to help you get that speck out of your eye. I appreciate so it. So here, can, can I kind of uh, see, let's see. Uh, I think I see clearly. Uh, let, me, let me make sure Is I can get that speck out. Oh. Do you see the humor? Do you see how ludicrous that actually is? Thanks. <laughs> Give Lucas a hand for his Academy Award performance. But, you know, that's what Jesus is kind of humorously trying to depict to us. It's like, what in the world are you trying to get a speck out of your brother's eye when you got this huge plank in your own eye? Why is one person's sin considered the size of a beam of wood or a plank or a log while another person's is considered only a speck? The difference is proximity and perspective. My own sin should be more glaring at me than your sin. Your sin should be more glaring at you than my sin. When you begin to attempt to grade the gravity of various sins as being more or less grievous, like saying comparing gossip to lust, you will almost always end up rationalizing, justifying, and minimizing your sin as you compare it to others. Again, I know I've shared this testimony with you before, but I think it's important to help, especially married couples, to see how you can fall into this trap. I've told you before that the first six years of mine and Lisa's marriage, while we had a lot of blessings, it's those years where our first three sons were born, we fought a lot. And we decided to seek out professional help. And as I've told you before, my intention is to go into counseling was to see Lisa get fixed. I knew deep in my heart that she was the problem. I knew I had issues, but my sin in this instance was certainly the speck, while hers was this huge beam of wood. So for the first three months, of course, the counselor focuses on me. And he gets to the point where he says, Jim, there are times you can be a brute towards Lisa. And I bristled. You see, as a pastor, I knew many of the husbands' lives and marriages in the church, so here came the rationalizations. I'm so much better of a husband than this guy or that guy. 
I always honor her birthday and Mother's Day and Christmas and her anniversary. We, we have date nights and, and I help with the kids and I help around the house. I, I tell her nice things. I tell her I love her. And yet what God wrestled with me and pinned me down to the mat over was, Jim, you can say the kind of hurtful things to your wife that you would never even consider saying to another woman. I broke over that. And I wept over the revelation of that ugliness in my heart. If I continued to refuse to face the beam sticking out of my eye, I would have caused much more pain in Lisa's life and destruction to her heart and the brokenness that was in our marriage. To be judgmental is to make a bigger deal of seeing someone else's sin and a lesser deal of seeing your own. You ignore your sin while magnifying the other person's sin. And Jesus calls a person who lives this way, you hypocrite. Hypocrite comes from two Greek roots. Hupo, which means under, and krino means to judge. You underjudge self while overjudging others. Pastor Gary Hamrick tells a funny story. He says, a woman came into my office one day and said, I've been married five times and every one of them was a lazy loser alcoholic. Lady, you've been in my office five minutes and I want a drink. You know, and it may have been true that all five of her husbands were lazy, loud alcoholics. But what she failed to try to see is that only one common denominator in all five failed marriages, and that was her. It was four marriages too late for her to take a closer look at the beam of wood in her own eye. I want you to hear this from me this morning. And I have found this always to be true. When it is always the other person's sin, the other person is the problem, the other person's fault, their issue and not mine, you're deceiving yourself. 1 John 1.8 says, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Sadly, this is where far too many Christian marriages are today. Each spouse trying to prove to themselves and to others that they're not the problem. Ask you married couples and even dating couples, is your relationship marked by judgmentalism? Is your life together characterized by blaming the other or pointing the finger across the table? Is it always his fault or her fault? Because if these things are true of you, then you have not been building a strong, healthy foundation that's based on the ways and values of Christ's kingdom, and you are doomed for further misery. Let's go on and read in verse 6. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? How do we move from beams and specks to dogs, pigs, holy things and pearls? It seems they have no connection whatsoever to what you've just taught us. You might be able to say that about my sermons. 
Jim, we don't get the connection. But not about Jesus' sermons. This is a Sermon on the Mount. This is one, considered one of the greatest sermons of all time. And we can be certain that what Jesus has to say here is important for us to understand. And it ties perfectly in to what he's speaking about in regards to judgment. I know we have a lot of dog lovers here. And I'm one of them. I love my little Rosie. But the dogs back in Jesus' day, they're not the cute, adorable lap dogs of today. Dogs back then were not pets, and those in around the city of Jerusalem were mongrel. They were ugly, they were mean and mangy, and dogs that scavenged around the city and hung around the garbage dump eating refuse. They were thought of as unclean animals by the Jews who wanted nothing to do with them. The holy things that Jesus speaks of are more than likely something that his Jewish listeners would know about and never do, and that is to give a portion of the temple sacrifices to feed the mangy dogs that ran around town. The pigs of Jesus' day were not nearly as domesticated as the ones you might see on a farm today, and back in the day, pearls were considered priceless. Imagine throwing an, a bunch of pearls into a pig pen. And how aggravated the pigs probably would be thinking that they were actually getting some grain to feed on and all they got is these pearls that they're trampling under their feet and getting more angry because their hunger isn't being satisfied. And both animals back then in a frenzy could tear a human to pieces. Kind of reminds me of Jesus' parable when he speaks of a man who found a pearl in a field and he sold everything to attain it. He just had to have it. You see, this is a picture of the preciousness of the gospel that we have, that we've received, that we've been commissioned to pass on. It is to be considered by us so precious and so priceless, of greater worth than anything else in the world. Who are the dogs and pigs to Jesus, followers? Well, I think they're people who are hostile to the gospel. The gospel is the most precious thing to a follower of Jesus, and there are times when we love people so much and we so desperately want them to believe the precious good news of the gospel that we're blind to the stiff, stubborn neck and proud, rebellious heart of the people we're trying to minister to. Jesus trying to tell his followers there will be times when you have cast the precious pearls of the gospel long enough. And now it's just time to live it before their eyes. Stop trying to force feed them with the gospel when they reject it and are opposed to it. Stop trying to give holy things and precious pearls to those who don't want it. If that person is a gospel project, you will cut off their relationship and move on to your next project. But know this, that person who has rejected your message is waiting to see, does he really care about me? I've been having the opportunity to minister to a young man who's struggling with alcoholism, and we talk every week. And at one point in the third week when we were talking and he wasn't really listening to my counsel, he asked me this question, are you going to stop talking with me because I'm not listening to you right now? You see, they, they, they want to know, are they, are they your project? Are you trying to save them? Or do you really love them? Do you really care about them? Will you hang in there with them? 
even though they're opposed and rejecting what it is that you have to share with them? Does he really want me as a friend? Does he reject me when I reject what he says? Does he just see me as a failed project to move on from? In these cases, you need to hang in there. Be dedicated to love them unconditionally. Continue to serve them. Be there for them in the time of need. Reflect Jesus to them. Pray continuously for them. And then trust God with their lives. You see, because the reality is we can't save anybody. And it's all in God's timing. And remember this. You were once a dog or a pig. So don't lose heart. Chris, if you'd come on up. So Jesus has made it clear, I think, that we are to be people who judge or maybe better said to discern. And the things that he wants you to discern for yourself is do I have a beam in my eye? Can I help my brother or sister remove their speck? Is it time to back off with the gospel? in this person's life that I've been ministering to. And as we're all going to see ahead, he tells his followers to beware of false prophets and false teachers. You see, we do have a responsibility to judge right from wrong, truth from error. We do have a responsibility to discern on behalf of other people in our lives and upon the things that we're hearing. Are they true or are they false? You're, you have the responsibility to discern every time you hear a message from us on Sunday morning. Not just to take for granted that the person standing up here knows what they're talking about. But in that, commanded not to be judgmental. The crux of the message this morning was to determine, am I a judgmental person? Am I a person with a beam sticking out of my eye while I try to remove the speck from someone else's eye? And I want to get real with you this morning. If there is someone in the IFC family that you have been judgmental towards, maybe it was a, it's a pastor or a ministry leader or someone that you still see as from the other church, you should go to that person even before you take communion this morning and confess that to them and ask them for forgiveness. You see, this is what people who live by the kingdom values of Jesus do. Totally contrary to the values and what people in the world do. If your marriage or your dating relationship has been in turmoil or trouble, you should probably turn to each other and say, I'm sorry. I've been focusing on your speck and ignoring my beam. Please forgive me. I want to change and be the husband. I want to change and be the wife you need me to be. You see, this is what people who live by kingdom values of Jesus do. Maybe you have a spirit of judgmentalism against a whole group of people because of their behavior and have held them in disdain and disgust rather than having the heart of Jesus and looking on them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Maybe you should admit that to a friend this morning and ask them to pray with you that God would change your heart about this group of people. This is what people who say they follow Jesus do. 
I can't say this enough. The transformation of God in a person's life rarely comes through independence and isolation, trying to work all this stuff out on your own. Deep and lasting change comes in community when you humble yourself and ask others to come alongside you for support, when you're honest and transparent with them and what you're struggling with and about the, the beam that's in your eye and the judgmentalism you've shown towards other people. You know, so often we, we want to walk out of here and just kind of, you know, hide this thing that we're being convicted on or God speaking to us and say, well, God, I'll work on that, you and me. And more times than not, it goes nowhere. We were made to be set free as we live in community with one another. We desperately need each other's help to stop rationalizing and justifying and judging people so that we might get free of that big old beam that has been sticking out of our eye. And you see, what Jesus is telling us is that your sin is always the beam and that other person's is always the speck. It's time to deal with your beam. And when it's finally removed, God will use you to help others actually get the speck out of their eyes. It's what David writes about so beautifully in Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not remove me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. This is a perfect example. Remember when Nathan came to David and he basically told him the story about that guy who took that one guy's little lamb and David was outraged. How could somebody do such a thing? And Nathan says, you're the man. You just did that when you took Bathsheba and had her husband killed. David was really willing to look at the other person's sin while this big old beam sticking out of his eye. But then he realizes it. And this prayer is actually that prayer of repentance that comes from his heart that now has been broken over his own sin. And he says, out of this pure heart, Lord, and the steadfast spirit you give me, may I teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Because he was willing to face the beam in his eye. Because he was willing to allow God to set him free through repentance. Now he knows that he will be given the ability by God to help others get the speck out of their eye. I want you to go ahead and spend some time in prayer this morning. And if the Holy Spirit is prompting you or asking you to act in some way, just go ahead and do it. And God will honor that and God will bless that. And God will shower you in his grace. So let's go ahead and spend that time now.